Well, it's really uh, an honor to be invited here by James. Well, he went off to his son's graduation from college. Um, so I want to talk to you today about something very mysterious and wonderful without which we could not survive, and that something is time. And I'm also going to read, I'll talk for a little while, and then I'll read one essay from my book, This is Getting Old, um, and then we'll have some time for um, discussion and questions. So, um, one of the basic teachings of Buddhism, as you may know, is impermanence, the truth of impermanence. Things change, um, everything fades and dies, nothing stays, we lose everyone we love through their death or through our own death. But impermanence is also a cause of joy, and what wasn't there before gets born, and um, it also gives us joy that just because life is passing, then there's the beauty of things in the moment, the flowers that wilt are beautiful because their beauty is momentary. So impermanence may be the cause of a lot of suffering, but it's also the cause of a lot of joy. And it's also the condition of our life. And it's another word, really, for time passing. Time passing is the same thing as impermanence. In our Dharma practice, we emphasize being present in the present moment, and our lives take place right now. So if we're worrying a lot about the future and planning the future, or if we're lost in regret and nostalgia about the past, then we lose the moment that we're living in. So we do practice trying to be here now. Um, so... To be fully alive, I, I must be fully present. And not, it's not just for my own sake, but for everyone else around me. If I want to be helpful to other beings, I can't be helpful unless I'm here present in my life and able to be present. And being present means not turning away, too. I have a quiet corner in my house, up in my bedroom, where I have an altar, a beautiful altar made out of an old apple tree that my brother, who's a woodworker, made for me. And I sit there in the early morning, and I am a person who is very accomplished at planning and planning and planning. And I have a busy life, and I have some anxiety about how am I going to get everything done that I'm supposed to get done and so I find that, um, you know, in spite of all my years of practice, this kind of tendency to plan continues and figure out how am I going to fit everything in. So um, when I sit down to meditate, it's uh, a really precious and rare opportunity in that quiet time away from the distractions of the phone and email to figure out what I am going to do the next day and the next week. And, oh, here's a good opportunity. So um, it turns out that really isn't a good path to equanimity. And um, I try again and again to return to the present moment. 
and um, the birds singing in the tree outside my window are my greatest allies in this. In the winter, they, there weren't hardly any birds outside my house, but they came back in the spring, and uh, so their morning song, their sutra in the morning, is very helpful to me to bring me back to the present. Um, it's just one of many ways that a person can come back. So I'm grateful for that. And um, it's my ongoing practice to try to be present. And when I finish my sitting, I have a vow that I say to myself. Well, I have a, a couple of vows, but one thing I say to myself is, I vow to be grateful for the precious opportunity of human birth. I vow to be present. This is it. So I try to start every day with that vow. Um, being present doesn't just mean, while you're meditating, though, it means being present in all the things we do. And there are certain activities, as we all know, certain activities that call you forth into the present moment more than others, where you completely are concentrating fully. It's required of you. I mean, you cannot do it without full concentration, like rock climbing, playing chamber music, having a baby. There's certain things that you do in life where there's, you're not distracted at all. Um, and when, I've, when I'm doing something like that, that calls forth my full concentration, it feels really good because it feels kind of purifying as though all the dust and cobwebs and junk and clutter is just getting washed away out of my brain. But it's wonderful to try and have that full concentration even when you're not having a baby, for example. <laughs> that most of life, you're not doing those kinds of things. So we can really keep practicing bringing our full self forward in every activity. Um, and that's my intention. So it, and it doesn't just mean um, kind of enjoying your bliss state and, and zoning out at all. It means really... Um, being present for whatever comes up and not, not turning away from what comes up, which isn't always what you want, necessarily. Um, or it could be difficult. The other day I went to visit a friend who recently had a surgery for lung cancer and I had signed up to help out. I signed up to walk his dog one day and I went over and walked the dog, and I came back inside and said, hello, how are you doing? And um, sat down just for a pause, and he said, it turned out he wasn't doing very well, that his pain medication wasn't really working, and I, so I waited for a while while he made some phone calls, and he got a new prescription, and I went to the drugstore and picked up the prescription and brought it back, and it was, um, and then I went back home and went back to work at my desk, which is what I had been planning to do. And so it was not a big deal. This was not a great martyrish activity of any sort. It was, but it was very easy to do that. But I might not have done it. I mean, I wouldn't put it past myself. I could have just brought the dog back and said, okay, see you on Wednesday morning. Um, but, you know, I paused, I stopped, I asked... And I 
heard a request and I listened and I was able, fortunately, uh, thankfully, to, to spend a little more time and to do that uh, favor for him. So it felt good to be able to do it and I was grateful that I had been able to be present in that small way. But that's just an example of the kind of thing that can come up so often in our lives. I think the ability to be present is really the ability to let go of self-clinging and to let go of the sense of your separate self and the boundaries between yourself and what's around you and to just give yourself over to the life that's around you and the life that's being lived through you. So that's one part of how we relate to time is to really try to be present. I recently saw the film, some of you may have seen it, um, Of Gods and Men. Have people seen that? Some people. It's really a wonderful movie. I recommend it highly. And it's about some French Cistercian monks who... uh, were living in Algeria. They had a little monastery in a village in Algeria at the end of the 20th century. And uh, they were very devoted in their practice and they chanted the psalms in their chapel. And they were really there to, to help the local people and to serve the local people. And um, I'm get there. Um, you know, they helped with gardening and farming and they had a medical clinic that they ran for the villagers. And then um, while they were there, there began to be raids locally by terrorists who were killing people and part of a sort of civil war in Algeria. And the monks knew that they were threatened at at risk because of these terrorists and people were urging them to leave and go back to France where they would be safe. And they, so a good part of the movie is they're meeting with each other and talking to each other and trying to decide whether to stay or go and they decide to stay thinking, well, this is, this is our life. This is our vow. This is what we're here for. Why would we go back to France? What would we do there? This is what we're here for. And yes, it's risky, but we're here. This is our commitment. And um, and then, indeed, at, in the end, uh, seven of the nine monks were kidnapped and assassinated by the terrorists, and two escaped by hiding, who now run another monastery elsewhere in North Africa. Um, but one of the most memorable moments in the film for me was during a discussion about whether they should stay or go when the monk who was the, ran the medical clinic and who was himself very sick with asthma um, said, I'm, I'm not afraid of the terrorists. I'm not afraid to die. I'm a free man. And he said it with this great exuberance as if he was kind of realizing this himself as he spoke. And... Uh, this is a kind of ability to be present and to not feel separation from what's around you that is very extreme and admirable and wonderful and seems to be, for me, a sort of ultimate bodhisattva way. And uh, we can admire it and aspire to it. I don't know if I would be able to say that in his position, but 
um, I, I was very inspired by that. Um, you know, if you're not afraid to die and you're not afraid of the terrorists, then you are free. You're free to stay, free to be present, free to help. So um, that was really turning, turning himself, his whole self over to his practice and his life. So even though Buddha's teachings encourage us to be present in the present moment, our teachings also encourage us to be aware of the, the past and the ancestors of the past and the generations to come in the future, and, um, which is quite different than planning your calendar for next week, but thinking way ahead into the future. And it seems like there might be a contradiction between being really present right here now and being aware of the many generations of the past and the ancestors of the past and the many generations to come. But in fact, I think they're very, very closely related and one makes the other possible in a way um, because the awareness of the past and the future is a kind of what we might call deep time where we're really inhabiting a sense of deep time. And in Zen practice and in our family practice, there's a huge emphasis on the lineage and the ancestors of the past. And uh, when we take vows, uh, when I took my vows initially, um, after several years of practice and got a Buddhist name and so on, um, and I got my first blue bib, (laughs) um, I was given what we call a lineage papers, and it, it was this... I have this paper that's all the generations of teachers who've passed the teachings down from Buddha all the way to me. And there are 92 names on this between Buddha and me going down to my teacher. So um, this is really a symbolic list because some of the people on the list were not actually alive in the same century who supposedly passed the teaching to each other. Or in the same place, they had, they had to kind of construct this list, but it's the idea is a good one, you know. And um, another thing that makes me take a slightly dimmer view of the list is, although I guess it's they were real, all real people, but they were all men. But one wonderful thing that has happened in our Soto Zen tradition this this year is that uh, a list of women ancestors, has also been officially approved by the Soto Zen Council. So we also now chant the names of women ancestors when we chant in our Zendos. We're always chanting the names of the ancestors. And I actually like doing that because I really do appreciate reminding myself of how how much has gone before, and of course we are grateful for Buddhist teachings, but there were a lot of people in between who did pass these teachings along and enlarged them in various ways. So it's kind of the lineage paper is, you know, it is, it's kind of schematic or something, but I mean, it's sort of like an American Kennel Club pedigree paper or something like that. Um, but it does mean something somehow. So, and, and we also know that you know, certain Native American cultures say that you need to act in a way that's beneficial for seven generations to come. And I will read you a little quote from the Constitution of the Iroquois Nation, which um, 
was a wonderful democratic federation of, of Iroquois people. So it says, in all of your deliberations, in your efforts at lawmaking, in all your official acts, self-interest shall be cast into oblivion. Look and listen for the welfare of the whole people and have always in view not only the present but also the coming generations, even those whose faces are yet beneath the surface of the ground, the unborn of the future nation. So this too is is a letting go of self-clinging, as it says right there. Self-interest shall be cast into oblivion. And some of you know and probably have studied with Joanna Macy, who's a wonderful Buddhist teacher, eco-philosopher, and she teaches about deep time and she teaches a lot about our responsibility to the generations to come. And um, she has... She has a wonderful invocation, which I'll read you a little part of. Uh, It's an invocation to the beings of the three times. The three times are the past, the present, and the future. So in her work, she's trying to help us all realize our responsibility and our gratitude for what's come before and our responsibility to those who are coming after us. This is just part of, I won't read the whole thing, but she says, We call first on the beings of the past. Be with us now, all you who have gone before, you, our ancestors and teachers. We call also on the beings of the present, all you with whom we live and work on this endangered planet, all you with whom we share this brink of time, be with us now. Lastly, we call on the beings of the future, all you who will come after us on this earth, be with us now all you who are waiting to be born in the ages to come. It is for your sakes, too, that we work to heal our world. There's something I've recently learned about called the precautionary principle, which is a term used by policymakers and scientists, and it was developed, I gather, uh, coming out of the Earth Summit in Rio, in the 1990s, maybe. And it's, the precautionary principle is just what it sounds like. It's the idea that you don't, do, you don't take an action um, or pursue a public policy or an environmental policy or develop some new technology unless you uh, are pretty sure that it's not going to be harmful to future generations. Instead of the opposite, which, you know, if you're sure... At the moment, everything just happens. If you can do it, you do it, sort of. And there's not enough sense of, well, what if if it has harmful consequences? There's not caution. Um, And we have been seeing the consequences. So I I really like the fact that the precautionary principle, it sounds so much like the Iroquois Constitution, and um, I hope it becomes more and more in our public discourse, but um, apparently in in some legal systems, including the laws of the European Union, the precautionary principle has been made a um, statutory requirement. So we who are alive in the present moment are really a link between the past and the future as far as deep time goes. You know, we're here now, but we're what connects the past and the future. And um, so 
we have to let go of our separate selves to be here now. We have to let go of our separate selves really to, to connect with the beings of the past and to identify and be accountable to the beings of the future. And um, that goes together, those feelings. Um, I, can, I can remember times when I have felt this connection of this deep time where I'm fully present but I'm also aware of the expanse of time. And, uh, for example, backpacking in the mountains, um, sitting by a stream up high on a granite boulder that's hot from the sun and I'm looking at a bright red Indian paintbrush and the water's running and the present moment is just completely sparkling and I'm far away from my worries and I've been hiking so I've got a good um, all those good chemicals going in my brain and um, and I'm fully present and at the same time I, I'm looking at these huge mountains and thinking oh my god you know these mountains these beings have been here forever forever I'm just so tiny I'm this little blink of a blink and um, there's this hugeness of time all around me. And it's such a good feeling. It's oddly good. You know, it makes everything, all my worries are so diminished and I just am aware of, of being part of the flow of time. And I think that's a kind of deep time. I'm working on a book now with another woman named Florence Kaplow, which is a collection of Zen uh, koans and teaching stories uh, from... Buddhist time, Buddhist teaching stories, not just then, from Buddhist time all the way up to the present, but mostly they're uh, pretty old Chinese and Japanese koans about women, because there isn't a collection of koans about women. And so I've been having a wonderful time diving into these stories. We're going to be getting commentaries on them from women teachers, and it's a big project. But as I've been working on it, I've been more and more... um, connected to these past ancestors who've been telling these stories and feeling kind of awestruck at how much they have meaning for us now and that these old teachings in a different time and culture and place are still speaking to me too. And that my, my job in a way with this book project is to be a bridge. If the ancestors of the past want to talk to the beings of the future, I'm helping them do it. I'm making some bridge in between. And that um, we do have a kind of responsibility to be that bridge. We're alive now, but we're not the only people who ever lived or whoever will, and sometimes we forget that. You know, We think we're discovering everything for the first time. But um, we're helped so much by what's come before. And even as we talk, you know, we're speaking a language that was given to us by our ancestors. So this too is a way of, of entering deep time, this awareness. And it's, it's a kind of translation. I mean, the word translation means to carry across. So as well as the translation from one language to another, there's the translation of carrying some teachings across from one time and one culture and one place to another. And um, so I thought I'd read you one one of these koans 
uh, it's a sort of long one. I'm just going to read the first little piece of it, which is kind of a separate piece. Um, The Old Woman's Relatives. Once a monk on pilgrimage met an old woman living in a hut. The monk asked, do you have any relatives? Or maybe, do you have any relatives? She said, yes. The monk said, where are they? She said, the mountains, rivers, and the whole earth, the plants and trees are all my relatives. And sometimes the word relatives in this story is translated as followers. So I think what's happening is that the monk is really skeptical about this old woman. You know, she's, what, what is her credibility as a follower of the way? She's just some old woman in a shack in the mountains. Who does she think she is? Um, you know, does she have any students? Who was her teacher? What Zen family is she part of? What school of Buddhism does she belong to? Where's her certificate? Where are her credentials? He's asking her to show him her credentials in a way. And so she shows him the world all around her. And she's telling him she's not separate. She's completely interconnected. And this teaching comes from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago in China. Um, But it's just like Joanna Macy's teachings. It's just like the teaching of deep time. It's just like the teaching that many people in this room, I'm sure, are working on things related to helping the planet and ways of being conscious of the natural world around us and trying to help it. So it just moves me that this old woman in her hut in China said, these are my relatives, the trees and the rocks and everything around me. So um, I think what I'll do is read you an essay from my book, which is about time. And um, the book is, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about the book. It's a collection of personal essays of mine about different aspects of aging. And hopefully, even though it's about my experience, I hope it extends to others and is of interest to others. And I feel as though I'm part of a dialogue about getting older that's happening and that's useful to us all, whether we're old or not. You know, we know somebody who is old. If you're not old yourself, you probably know somebody who is. And... um, you're getting older all the time, no matter how old you are. So it's, and I'm also very aware of the fact that I'm not very, very, very old. And sometimes when I've given, given readings from the book, um, somebody, there's been some person, an, in the, some white-haired, bent person in the front row would say, what are you talking about, young lady? You know, you, haven't, you don't have a clue what it's really like to be old. I'm 85 and it really isn't that much fun or, or, or whatever. But anyway, I, I mean, sometimes it's not just negative things, but I really honor and respect people who are my elders. I totally do. And I don't have the chutzpah to say, I know how to get old, but I'm learning. And I think it's good to practice that and to investigate it and have some curiosity about it and to keep talking to each other about it. So, uh, you know, I, I encourage us all to keep talking to each other about it and learning what we can from people who are further along the path because um, it's an interesting and surprising process and there are good things, hard, challenging things about it and there turn out to be some wonderful things about it too. And I'm trying to deal with, with both, all different sides of it in this book. Um, but the, the piece I'm going to read right now is, is about time, and it's, more, it's more, more Buddhist than most of the pieces in here. 
I mean, they all have a slightly Buddhist slant on them, but since I'm here with a Buddhist group, I can read one of the more Buddhist pieces. When I was 49, and my son's... Oh, it's called For the Time Being. And I actually wrote it while I was... At the time that I was studying um, a writing by Zen master Eihei Dogen, who's one of my favorites, um, called The Time Being, and it's an essay about time and about deep time, and it's really a wonderful piece, which again is also a teaching from the past that's very similar to um, that old woman's story about being present with everything. And So anyway, this is my sort of, in a way, response to Dogen, but you don't have to know that at all. For the time being, when I was 49 and my sons were more or less grown, I kept a promise I had made to myself to go on a long retreat before I turned 50. I arranged a leave of absence from my job, had a set of robes sewn for me, and went to a practice period at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, deep in the coastal mountains of California. For three months, I followed the strict monastic schedule, meditating, studying Buddhist teachings, and working in silence at whatever I was assigned to, whether it was chopping carrots or cleaning kerosene lanterns. I didn't get in a car or hear a phone ring the whole time. Zen monks are called to Zazen by the striking of the Han, a heavy wooden block that hangs from a rope beside the temple entrance. The Han is hit with a wooden mallet, and at Tassajara, oh, in an intricate pattern that lasts for 15 minutes. And at Tassajara, where the monks' cabins stretch out along a narrow valley, a second Han, known, excuse me, I have to cough for a minute, water, aging. (laughs) A second Han, known as the Echo Han, hangs partway down the path to pass the signal along. You can tell how much time you have left to get to your cushion in the zendo by listening to the pattern. The crack of wood on wood runs fast through the valley. Written in calligraphy on the block itself are the words, wake up, Life is transient, swiftly passing. Be aware, the great matter, don't waste time. One evening, somewhere in the middle of the practice period, it was my turn to hit the echo echo han, (coughs) strike for strike. I stood on the dusty path, mallet in hand, like a frog on a lily pad, waiting for a fly. I faced the garden where the evening sun came through a gap in the mountains and landed on a pair of apricot trees. I was poised in the brief interval between hits, waiting, and the weeks of the practice period stretched out before me and behind me into infinity. And when the next hit came to my ears, my arm lifted the mallet and whacked the board, no holding back. And then it was quiet again, and the light was still on the apricot trees, and I was ready for the next hit. (coughs) A couple of years ago, When I was 65, I packed up my things at work. I loved my job. I had loved it for 17 years, but editing a magazine with a quarterly deadline meant that I was under constant time pressure, and I wanted to have time for other things before I died. Quiet time, deep time, for writing, dharma, family and friends, and maybe for something new and unknown. The part of me that wants to lower my bucket into a deep well and draw up cool water is sabotaged by another part 
I suffer from a condition that a Zen friend called FOMS syndrome, F-O-M-S, fear of missing something. It's a form of greed, the urge to cram as many interesting activities into the day as possible, coupled with the impulse to say yes to everything. To put it more positively, I'm curious about everything and everybody. And so, when I first retired, (coughs) feeling rich with time, I signed up for all sorts of activities, classes, and volunteer projects. Each separate thing I was doing was worthwhile. I loved my Spanish class and my photography class, for example. But where was my deep time? I was busier than ever. Skip a little. Of course, you can't really measure time at all. Our calibrations are like pencil marks on the ocean. Einstein taught us that time is flexible. It passes differently for a person in commuter traffic, a person centering a lump of wet clay on a potter's wheel, or, so Einstein told us, a person approaching the speed of light in a spaceship. An hour can seem like a year, and a year like an hour. In the last days of my father's dying, he was in a lot of pain from cancer. He would often ask what time it was, and whatever the answer was, he would groan and say, Oh no, is that all it is? I couldn't understand why he wanted time to hurry up, because there wasn't anything that was going to happen except that he was going to die. I think the pain made time pass slowly, and getting through it from one hour to the next felt like some kind of triumph to him. I too have had times when I wanted time to hurry by, but mostly time is what I want more of. And as I get older, it gets scarcer and scarcer. First of all, there's less of it in front of me than there used to be. Second, each year swings by faster than the one before. Third, I'm no good at multitasking anymore. I can only do one thing at a time. And fourth, it takes me longer to do each thing. Age is forcing me to slow down. I remember impatiently watching my grandmother making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a picnic. She got the jam out of the cupboard and put it on the blue linoleum countertop, and then she walked back across the large kitchen to the same cupboard for the peanut butter, and then again for the bread. It took forever. Well, not quite forever, because she did make the sandwiches, and we ate them on a plaid blanket down in the meadow. Here's the amazing thing. Aging is giving me back the present moment. It's only linear time that's shrinking, And as it does, I have a better chance to enter deep time. It only takes a few seconds to slip through the crack between two hits of the Han into a timeless garden. This is what meditation is all about. It's time out of time. It's stepping aside from activity and slowing down to a full stop. While I'm meditating, even if my monkey mind is swinging wildly from branch to branch, at least I'm not accomplishing anything useful. As the Heart Sutra says, there is no attainment with nothing to attain. It's easy to get nothing done while sitting zazen. A person of any age can do it. But now that I'm getting older, I'm learning to accomplish practically nothing in the rest of my day as well. (laughs) If the trend continues, my next-door neighbor will think I'm doing standing meditation in the backyard when I'm actually taking in the laundry. I like to bury my face in the sunny smell of the sheets on the line before I take it down. 
I like the slow squeak of the line through the rusty pulley as I haul in another sweet pillowcase. The laundry lines of my childhood made exactly that noise. I'm not saying I'm ready to quit. In spite of what the Heart Sutra tells me, I still have things I want to accomplish in the world beyond the laundry line, and I want to keep working with other people to help this feverish planet. I'm learning that slowing down is the way. I have to pay attention to my natural rhythms. I try to let each thing take as long as it takes, and I'm trying to put some white space back into my calendar. Now, layers of time live in me. I think of this layering as vertical time when all time flows into the present moment, as opposed to the horizontal timeline that is measured by clocks and calendars. When old people get the generations mixed up and call a grandson by a brother's name, they're not exactly wrong. They're living in the deep time that Dogen calls the time being. Dogen says, Each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. I think of time as the landscape I'm traveling through on a train, and the train is my life. I can only see what's outside the window. Yesterday was Naperville, Illinois. Today is Grand Junction, Colorado. Tomorrow will be Sparks, Nevada. I just see the piece that's framed by the train window, but it's all there at once, all those places, the whole continent. I was visiting my granddaughter, Paloma, in Texas, and on the, third, the, day, the very day of her third birthday, we went to the neighborhood swimming pool and played in the shallow end, and she poured pailfuls of water over my head, pretending she was washing my hair. She looks like her father when he was a small child, when I sat on the closed toilet lid in the bathroom while he took his bath, watching him fill graduated plastic cups with water and line them up along the edge of the bathtub for Snow White and Peter Pan to swim in. My three-year-old self was there with Paloma, too, on another hot summer day, filling a wooden bucket from the hand pump in my grandmother's garden in order to paint the the garden chairs with water. Playing in the pool with Paloma, I didn't think of those watery long-ago moments consciously. I didn't need to. As Paloma turned her bucket upside down over my head, long ago disappeared, and those other childhoods, those other summers, flowed over me and soaked to my skin. Before we left the pool, Paloma went over to the lifeguard, sitting in his elevated chair. She held up three fingers and called, Hi, lifeguard, I'm three! I'm three! Threeness was in me, too. I can't be in more than one place at the same time but I can be in more than one time in the same place. Time is not something I have. It's what I'm made of. So I think I'll stop with that. Uh, We have time for some discussion. And I would be interested in whatever thoughts you have about your inhabiting of time, the present, the past, the future, deep time. And we have this here. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to start by saying thank you for your book, which I gave to myself for my 60th birthday. (laughs) And um, I'm still 
heavily multitasking and finding myself out of the present most of the time. But um, your book really touched me, and uh, it was just a, a great gift, and it helps remind me to, to come back. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Anybody else? Um, I just wanted to share uh, something similar to what something you said earlier about um, those wonderful moments when you're hiking and you're really connected to your feet and the earth and everything around you. And I, I, I love to hike, and I look forward to that moment in every hike. And no matter where I'm hiking, no matter how miserable I am otherwise, there's always that moment where I just totally feel part of the whole, mm-hmm. part of everything. And mm-hmm. it's such a, it's so, it's why I keep hiking, even yeah. though my hips really hurt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. when you're in that place, metaphorically as well as physically, you think, why, why don't I do this all the time? But then the question becomes, I mean, I actually can't go backpacking anymore. My knees aren't quite up to it. So how do we bring that awareness into you know, our everyday life when we're not doing something so dramatic. Maybe some pe- some of you have ideas about that. Water meditation is what I do. Water meditation. Water meditation. Yeah, when I'm doing the dishes, it's like yeah, it's like I dishes. don't have to go too yeah. far to get that water out yeah. of the faucet, and yeah. I'm just really connected to the water. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Well, I. I have this um, image. Uh, it comes from the fact that as I'm getting older, um, it does feel like uh, time is moving like an out-of-control freight train, without an, even without a, an engineer. Mm-hmm. But I also had this... Um, um, this I also am having this uh, image of... Uh, you know how a, at the center of a hurricane or the center of a tornado, I can't tell the difference right now, there's, a, there's sort of like a still point. Mm-hmm. And that's the image that's <laughs> somehow it's coming to my mind. Things feel so out of control, and yet it's uh, speeding out of control, and yet that's actually helping me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's forcing me, or challenging me in some ways to be aware of the preciousness of of the present mm-hmm. moment, the stillness of the present moment. So that's all I have to yeah, say. That's, <laughs> this no, is that's just great. what's emerging. Yeah. Well, there's that. I, mean, I think T. S. Eliot uses the phrase the, at the still center of the spinning wheel. So that no matter how fast a wheel is going around, as you approach the center, there's some place you can't ever quite get to in the real world that's completely still, but it gets slower and slower and slower in the middle. And so even in the busiest of times, we can look for that stillness. And yeah, do they uh, say more about that? Oh, really? Uh-huh. And how about us? Where are we? How far are we from or close to the center? Do you know how close we are to the center of our galaxy? We're spinning pretty fast, in other words. 
<laughs> I thought it seemed kind of like that, but <laughs> well, maybe when we get to, if we can get our spaceships to get a little further away, we can get to the center of the galaxy where it'll be nice and peaceful. Yes, find the invisible bridge. That's really what it's about. Those invisible bridges can sort of pop up in odd places and odd moments. Yes. Oh. Here comes the mic. Um, You you talked about uh, we're made out of time. Mm-hmm. And um, I was hoping you could talk more about uh, what's the relation between um, accepting uh, the moment as it is and embracing uh, the moment and, and its passage and um, accepting and, and embracing ourselves as, as mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Yeah, because accepting the present moment would include and does include accepting ourselves as we are right now, before we've finished our exercise program, you know. Um, so, uh, there, just as as we try to be fully present, we try to be fully appreciative of ourselves as we are. And maybe I'll quote one of my favorite things from Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center, and he was talking to his students, trying to explain what Buddha nature is, and and saying that everybody has Buddha nature, and he said, you're all perfect exactly as you are, and you could use a little improvement. (laughs) So both things are true at the same time. I mean, we can completely accept ourselves and love ourselves, and we are perfect. We are perfect in this moment, and this moment is perfect. But also, you know, there's a lot of work to do, and the moment isn't really perfect, and the, the, the... Indian paintbrush is beautiful, but maybe it's an endangered species, and what are we going to do about that? And, you know, so that both the relative and the absolute are there at the same time, but we can start with this, or keep this foundation of faith in ourselves that really we are perfect with our, our difficulties and our challenges and our foibles. And, our, and if we didn't have those, boy, what would we do? I mean, my goodness, you know, if if we were perfect in the relative sense as well as the absolute sense, we wouldn't have anything to do. We might as well be dead. We would, we would be dead, I think. So, but, of course, it's easier said than done, accepting ourselves in the moment. It's just, I think, an ongoing practice. Maybe other people have some suggestions, too, about how to do that, how to learn self-acceptance. And other acceptance too. Sometimes the other people around you, you can accept them as they are and that goes both ways. Yes? Um, I think for myself, I, I like to think about it as, um, you know, it's like we say there's always 2020 in hindsight that um, a moment exists as it does and we're doing the best that we can in that moment because that's what's incepted, that's what's created. But to remember to also have that critical mind present to be paying attention to what you can learn from that lesson and how you can bring it into the future. So to not get caught on, oh, I did this wrong and stay in the past, but to bring it with you 
later, and you have to be very gentle. It's very hard to be that gentle on yourself, but um, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Well, and also that we are, I mean, we're making mistakes all the time, and life, as Suzuki Roshi also said, life is one continuous mistake. So, you know, that's a kind of comforting thought. I mean, you, you can't do it wrong, but you also can't do it right. And um, so it is a learning process, and, and that's what karma is, too. You know, we have these, we've made mistakes in the past, and maybe we're, the fruits of those mistakes are, are around us, and we're seeing them, but then in this very moment, we're laying down the next karma, we, whatever we do right now is going to have effects at some point in the future, too. So we always, every moment is a fresh start. Every moment we can take a new step forward, learning from our mistakes of the past. And to be grateful for those mistakes, really. I haven't been able to backpack for a long time, but I took a Year to Live class, and one of the things I wanted to do was to um, see nature more fully before I passed. So I couldn't go out into the woods, so what I did was I went into my backyard and I set up a chair, and I had a bench, and I meditated all night long. Wow. And I was able to see the moon and the stars, the moon moving through the sky, and the birds, and all the different species of insects came out at their own time. Mm. I watched the fog pass back and forth all night long. Um, and then I heard the birds wake in the morning, you know, each of the different species. So that was something that was at home, and yet, in nature at the Mm -hmm. same time. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention was um, you were talking about the descendants and the ancestors and um, creating a world that is um, livable for them. And um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was there's an opportunity now Um, with the California Public Utility Commission, they're thinking of relicensing the two nuclear power plants in Southern California because their license has just expired. And at this moment, they're taking public comment before they relicense them for the next 20 years. And both of them were put near fault lines. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things I would like to bring up is in terms of for the future descendants is that Chernobyl is uninhabitable for 20,000 years. And so we have this window of opportunity Mm -hmm. to say no to the reactors Mm -hmm. licensing, relicensing, Mm because Chernobyl, Fukushima, uh, LA, you know, that could all have been us. So anyways, the California Public Utility Commission is open to your opinion for this very short time. Well, thank you very much for bringing that up. And how, uh, how do you contact them? What's a good way email. to... Email. So email. just go online and look for the pu- public utili- California Public Utilities Commission. Yes. They're waiting to see whether or not the earthquake uh, or the fault lines will affect the reactors. So they're going to do a study. So in that time, in that time, we have the opportunity to say, regardless of whether you find it okay the consequences of something going wrong 
20,000 years uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. And I think they're being modest. I think it's much, yeah. much worse than that. Um, are not worth the risks mm -hmm. for California, mm -hmm. I believe, or the rest of the country. Anyways, that's well, thank you. This is a perfect example, too, of the precautionary principle as yes. well. Yes. I think maybe I'll email also that in there because I've yeah. never heard of that until yeah. tonight, so thank you. Yeah, and it's many, um, seven generations in the future, as the Iroquois say, well, that's a long time for, compared to the way we are used to thinking. We don't even think seven generations, but as you point out, these toxins and radiation is a lot more than seven generations. It's, who knows, 90,000 generations. I don't know, many generations. Yeah, so... Um, I wanted to thank you for that beginning story because I think, um, well, I have been thinking a lot about uh, the packaging that things come in. And sometimes, I know for myself, I focus so much on the package or what it looks like or what it needs to look like. And I think that um, that example of sitting in mm, the garden is nice. a perfect example yes. of not needing to be on a backpacking trip or yes. not needing to be at a monastery or not needing to be you know, to have the credentials mm -hmm. as, as mm -hmm. you told in, mm -hmm. in that story about mm -hmm. the, with the monk earlier, mm -hmm. but to remember that it, it just exists and it doesn't have to look anyway. That's right, yeah. yeah. And in my book, I tell a story about an old man I knew who was very important to me. He, was a, he died a couple of years ago now, but um, he was a Benedictine priest and sort of mystic and very knew a lot about Zen. Anyway, I... Um, got to know him pretty well, and he was kind of a mentor for me. And at the end of his life, he lived in a um, kind of, I guess it was assisted living, but he was very disabled. He was in a wheelchair, and he was had this one-room apartment, and his meals were brought to him there. And he had lived on a farm. He had started a whole retreat center up in the hills of Sonoma, and he loved nature. Well, he sat in this um, little room, and there was a pear tree outside his window, and he couldn't, he practically never left the room, but the pear tree, every time I came, he would be admiring the pear tree and telling me, oh, look, the pear tree, now it's got blossoms, now the leaves are falling off, now the leaves are turning red, or whatever. He saw all the seasons, and all of nature was there, present for him completely in that pear tree, and he, was, he had a very large universe that he lived in, even though it was in this tiny little apartment. So we can get into a big space, an expansive mind, even in our limited world. Well, I think maybe it's time to stop. And um, let's see what happens next. Um, oh, yes, a dedication of merit. Let me offer a dedication of merit. So we dedicate the merit of our practice together this evening, our sitting, our discussion, our chanting, to all beings. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion. 
and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.